I have entitled the message here for this passage, Blinded by the Light and Running Out of Time. That is, to me, the situation that is here in front of us. There are certain passages in the Bible, especially when you're in the epistles, that lend themselves very, very easily to outlining. There are other passages in the Bible that are a bit hard to outline. Actually, in the terms of some expositors, they resist outlining. There is a sense in which this is one of those passages that resists outlining. Part of the reason for that is because this is not so much a passage where we're being taught line upon line principles in a straightforward teaching fashion, but rather we are sort of eavesdropping, as it were, on a conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees. And if you can understand that, I think it'll help. Another thing is that in this crowd of what are hard-line Christ rejectors, the Pharisees, there are also a lot of people that aren't like that. And they're listening with all their hearts. And the response and the effect that Christ and His presence and His Word has upon them is absolutely life-changing. At the end of the day, the Pharisees went their way. At the end of their life, they went to hell. Jesus said, you will seek me, you will try to follow you as you always look for me and try to find me. But you will not be able to find me at that point and you will die in your sins because you've rejected me. So there is a completely opposite reaction on the part of different people in the crowd. But we are looking at a discussion, a conversation here. I do see, however, four things that stand out in the text, having said all of that. Obviously, there is the affirmation of the light when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. What happens next is they just immediately begin to argue with him. And you have to look at your life today and ask yourself as we deal with this, if you're one who argues with God or if you're one who lets God teach you. There is behind the argument, of course, the arrogance of these people. The arrogance. The Bible tells us that if you have knowledge but you don't live near to God, that that knowledge will puff you up and make you arrogant and proud. And we have the picture of that here. So the affirmation, the argument, and the arrogance. But then the most wonderful thing of all to me is that many believe on Him in the end, and that is the acceptance of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So the affirmation of the light. I want to just work our way through the text because it's lengthy rather than reading it up front. In verse 12, Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. And he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. If you have the picture there, Jesus called the Pharisees, if you recall, blind guides, which that in itself is an odd statement, isn't it? If you're a guide, certainly you see better than anyone and can guide them. He said you are blind guides. They were the guides to the people. The people were used to following the teaching of these men. But experientially, in their lives, if we could put it in church terms, when they went home from church and they lived their life throughout the week, they painfully discovered so repeatedly that this teaching and the guidance of these blind guides left them blind and unable to handle the situations of life and unable really to know God. Thus the blind guides. Now Jesus comes along into what has been a long-standing situation. And he begins to teach. And he basically doesn't quote all the other rabbis like they do. He's God. He doesn't have to quote anybody. He just tells them, I am the light of the world. 
And if you follow me, you will have the light of life, implying just like you don't have it now. You will have it. Put me to the test. I am the light of the world. And he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. A wonderful affirmation upon which we spent a whole study. Secondly, they begin to argue with the light, with Jesus, with the light on our own hearts. And they say to him, you bear witness of yourself, thus your witness is not true. In verse 13, the amazing thing is that their statement wasn't true. They're saying, oh, you're just bearing witness of yourself. Your witness isn't true. The problem is their statement wasn't true. You see, what is happening here is it's actually, if you could put it in these terms, it is, it's the courtroom language of the Old Testament. In the Bible, in the book of Deuteronomy, it said, On the testimony of two, Deuteronomy 17.6, On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a man shall be put to death, but no one shall be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. And that's one of many scriptures we could cite, but the principle and the law that came out of that was that people don't make their own singular self-assertions. There must be other witnesses. And so they're kind of twisting all of that and applying it to Jesus. You're just bearing witness of yourself. Thus, your witness is not true. But you see, their statement was so far from being true itself. There's an amazing thing here, a number of them, and it's worth pointing out. In the Gospel of John, this word witness receives special attention. John raises it as a word at the forefront. Can you turn to chapter 1? I'll show it to you. Just how it, just, it begins that way, the whole gospel. Chapter 1 to verse 6. And you see it says here, Now they're saying, You bear witness of yourself, therefore your witness isn't true. But look at how far from reality that is. In John 1, 6 it says, There came a man who was sent from God. John the Baptist came into this world with one main purpose, sent from God to bear witness of God Himself when He came, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That was His reason for living. So much so that when He was done, so was His life, right? God allowed Him to be beheaded. He had so wonderfully fulfilled His mission in life. And God has such an economy. He doesn't waste anything. And he wants all of us with him, you know. So as soon as John was done, boom, John was in heaven. But he had one purpose, to bear witness of the light. That's what his whole life was about. And so you read in verse 6, There was a man who was sent from God, his name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as, what's the next word? A witness to the light, the true light that gives light to every man that was coming into the world. And you can imagine John himself writing, and he's thinking, oh, I'd like to just right now get right over to where Jesus said that he was the light of the world. I'd like to just hop right over to that whole thing, but I've got to get all the other stuff in in the meantime, so we'll have to wait for a few later chapters. But you see how it ties together, it flows. Not only did John the Baptist witness regarding Jesus as the Son of God, the Messiah, there's the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, there's... How about the works of Jesus? To me, it is shocking to see what Jesus did in His ministry so regularly in terms of the miracles and all of that. And for these people to stand there and have the audacity that you just bear witness of yourself. What about His works, the miracles? 
Nobody else went around doing these things. And how about the Father? He's baptized in the River Jordan by John the Baptist, and the Father speaks and affirms him. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the Father speaks and affirms him. Father himself in so many ways. Or how about the Old Testament? We have even earlier in this study of the Gospel of John looked at how Christ is all through the Old Testament. We did it in a series on Sunday morning, Christ in the Old Testament. And so the whole Old Testament in the volume of the book, it is written of me, says the Lord. Or how about the crowds? See, the Bible says, in contradistinction to these arrogant Pharisees, that the common people heard him gladly. Pretty much the same way today. But there were so many changed lives. The evidence was all over the place. So that when they said, you bear witness of yourself, that's the farthest thing from being true. Or how about just the Holy Spirit? I mean, to listen to Jesus with any kind of an open heart was to get heartburn because the Holy Spirit was there touching you. The Spirit of God was everywhere with him. So you look at that and you see all of these different witnesses coming together. And you, then you realize this, that if God would go so far as to have a man come to this world, live and die, with the sole purpose of being a witness of Jesus, John the Baptist, and if he would marshal together all these other witnesses we've just gone through, you have to say, well, what was the purpose? Simply this, that beyond any shadow of a doubt, it would be shown that he is the Son of God, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that what he says about salvation is true, that what he says about God's love for you is true, that when he talks about forgiveness, when he, when he forgives people, when he says, go and sin no more. When you see him heal a person and then forgive them of their sins, the point is this, God has done everything necessary to enable you to believe, to be forgiven, and to go to heaven when you die. There's nothing left undone. If it's hard for you, it's only because you make it hard. God has done more than enough to enable you to believe and embrace Christ. We read in John 1.7, He came as a witness to testify to that light so that through Him all men might believe. They say, you bear witness of yourself, thus your witness isn't true. Jesus basically responds with three reasons why His witness is true. One response is that He knew His origin and His destiny. In verse 14, if you go back to John 8, in verse 14, Jesus answered and said to them, Even if, even if I bear witness of myself. As if to say, that's right, I am bearing witness of myself. But you see, I know who I am. And I know what my message is. And I know why I'm here. And I know where I'm going when I'm done here. Jesus said, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from and where I am going. Jesus had an infinite, sweeping self-knowledge of God. Think about that. I've stared at this verse a lot. I've studied this passage over and over and over and never gotten to teach it yet. One of the things that struck me so deeply the other day was this odd response to what they are saying to him. And I began to realize, he says, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true because I know who I am. I know where I'm coming from, where I'm going. They were so used to telling lies. 
They were so used to living in utter falsehood that when they heard someone else say something, they just assume everybody lived like they did. So used to telling lies and so used to living in falsehood, they assumed everybody was like that. And frankly, that's the way it is if you're a big liar. You just assume everybody's like you. And you find yourself listening to people when they talk and thinking, oh, you big liar. Well, where'd you get that? Well, because you are one, you know, you see, so you just assume everyone else is. They were so used to telling lies and living in falsehood, they assumed everyone like that. In so many ways, these dishonest religious people did not know how to deal with being face to face with the honest self-knowledge of the Son of God. He simply confidently stands there honestly telling them the truth. He really doesn't need 15 other witnesses at all because it's pure, honest truth from a heart that has this deep self-knowledge of God and godliness. Just listen closely. Follow me on this. I'm gonna, this is a real digression, but it's, I think, worth it. There is a very powerful principle here for us as Christians. Just look at these two sides. They're so used to living in lies and falsehood, they think everybody lives like this. And here's one who doesn't. They're so different. These people burn up so much energy in keeping up their front of being godly when they're not. He's not burning up excess energy on putting up any front. There is no front. He just lives in godliness. There's all these qualities about him. First of all, I think it's obvious to all of us because he's God. But the mystery of Christ is that he's 100% God and he's 100% man. To apply it to us, I want to say we're looking at a human being here who has an incredible self-knowledge of a godly life. And out of that comes so many things just so naturally. And I believe God wants to draw all of us into that. You see, as, as you watch Jesus in the Gospels, there's an unusual humility about him. There is an unusual confidence. It's a rest. There is such a, a union with Christ the man, with God the Father, that there's this rest and confidence in, in Him, in the Father. And I believe that to have heard Jesus, to be near Him, was to see it in His eyes. I believe to listen to Him was to hear it in His voice, to see it in His body language, to feel that influence in an unusual way and the peace that just seemed to follow him everywhere. And you know something? The Bible speaks of Christ in you. He has come to do the same thing in you. You know, I think we could all turn around and look back over the last couple of decades, which in all of human history were probably more devoted to self-esteem than any other time period for the human race. And in the end, you understand the basic thought is a good one, that we all need to be able to live with ourselves. We all need to be able to wake up in the morning and feel like we have a reason for living and a reason for existing and, and that we belong and that we mean something. I think we all can accept that as Bible-loving Christians. But all the excess and all the energy burn up on that. To what end? A lot of arrogance and pride and self-centeredness and preoccupation with yourself and so on. Positive self-talk, memorizing lines that will, you know, give you stair steps to success and everything else. When in reality, if we simply would be able to look in the mirror 
And given the fact we know we're sinners saved by grace, if we could just look in the mirror with a self-knowledge of a godly life, how different everything would be and how different it is. Because when you meet a godly person, you see it in their eyes, you hear it in their voice, you see it in their body language. And given the fact that we communicate in some 700,000 forms of body language, there's a lot of expression of God in there. And there's a peace and there's an influence. You see, these men that he was talking to were so far from that that they simply can't even hear him. But the Bible says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The Bible says in Isaiah 26.3, speaking of the Lord, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And then it says in verse 4 of Isaiah 26, Trust in the Lord forever, for in the Lord is everlasting strength. This powerful principle of having the self-knowledge of a godly life, it is so wonderful because it enables you to live while still a sinner because you're human, to live a godly life because of Christ, and to love life and to enjoy God and to enjoy living and being used of Him and to do it with a healthy confidence that's founded in Him, not your merit, but His. Martin Luther said something wonderful on this. He said, Faith is a living, well-founded confidence in the grace of God so perfectly certain that it would die a thousand times rather than surrender that kind of conviction. Such confidence, he said, and personal knowledge of divine grace makes its possessor joyful, bold, full of warm affection toward God and all created things, all of which the Holy Spirit works in that individual. Hence, that kind of person becomes without someone hovering over them, shoving them all the time. They come without constraint, eager, wanting to do good to everyone because they become Christ-like. And you have a confidence... You have a self-knowledge. I know God and I'm right with Him. I know where I came from. A life of sin. Dishonesty, falsehood, lies, and corruption. I know where I came to. The cross of Jesus Christ. And I know where I'm going now. Heaven. By the grace of God and the blood of Christ. And I know what I'm doing along the way. I'm walking with God. It is a wonderful principle of life that is here in front of us. People who know that they are walking with God always in some way have this confidence if it's founded in grace. And when you're near to Him, you feel secure. You could stand against anything. I remember the turning point in my life when I realized, Lord, you know, I now know that Christian life isn't going to be every day just a wonderful day. But I am also learning, this was a few years ago, I'm also learning, Lord, that I can go through anything if I'm close to you. Absolutely anything by your strength and with the confidence that you give me. On the other hand, if you don't live near to God or if you don't know Him, all you have to look forward to is a wobbly, wishy-washy, uncertain, undependable life. Because the one stabilizing factor in life is Christ. That is the one stabilizing factor. And if you don't live near to Him, you've lost all stability. And you know that, and I know that too. I come to this passage and I see Jesus saying, I'm the light. You want it? I'll guide you. You want to be guided? I'll show you the way personally. You want to be shown the way personally? And I'm astounded at these men who just want to argue with Him. True Christians just believe what God say about them, forgiven. And in the end, you refuse to even listen to your own feelings. And you anchor your faith in grace and in the Word of God. 
and you believe who you are now in Christ, you believe you're a new creature in Christ, and that you're freed from the old life, and you end up with a wonderful sense of security in Him, and that security is the anchor of your soul, anchored in the grace and the love of God. And it becomes evident in, in every bit of your life. It was evident here. That's why those that were open were so influenced and many believed. You see it in witnessing. I think that this is one of the great determining factors in Christian witness. Sometimes Christians wonder, why is my witness not effective? But I see others have an effective witness. I think it comes down to this. Simply the self-confidence of a godly life. The self-knowledge of living with God. I'm walking with God, therefore I expect to be blessed. You see it in preachers. You can have two preachers preach on the same text, same passage. One at that point living near to God, the other not. And there's a totally different influence. You can have a, a passage, a section of the Bible rightly divided, and all the truth brought out. That's all light. And you can have that sermon, that message delivered all light, but with no heat. Because the heat is the passion for God, the real thing. On the other hand, you can have a guy come up, open the Bible. He didn't study that hard. And so he doesn't have much light. But he's got so much passion for God, so he's basically all heat and no light. And what you really need is to know that you're walking with God. I know where I've been, I know where I came to, and I know where I'm going. I'm walking with God. I'm going to heaven. He has a plan for me today. The equation comes to this, light and heat. You see it in preaching, you see it in witnessing, you see it in everyday living for the child of God. That's why I believe that when Jesus preached, as opposed to listening to the scribes and the Pharisees, the reaction is so different. Look in your Bible, hold your place in John, and turn over to Matthew chapter 7, to verse 28. I love reading through these comments about Jesus and his preaching. Matthew 7, 28. He's been teaching along, preaching along, and it says, And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. In other words, they were so bored to death with these guys with their speeches from the Bible when there was no fire behind it all. And here Jesus, without trying, just it flows out. He leaves them astonished. You know what the Greek word means literally? It means to strike one out of self-possession. It means to strike with panic, shock, or astonishment. To be struck with amazement. Along came the real thing, and they hadn't seen it in so long. They were totally amazed. In Jeremiah 23, 29, God says, Is not my word like a fire, a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces? That's what Jesus had, a marvelous serenity displayed as he moved with confidence and courage as he stood calmly before them. And he said, I know who I am. I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going, but you do not. You don't know where you're going, you don't know where you're at, and you don't know me because of it. So back to John 8:14. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I came from and where I am going. You've missed the whole point. So he knew his origin and his destiny. It's one of the ways he explains his witness is true. And then he says that the intimate union of himself with the Father is another point of proof. He says in verse 15, John 8, he said, You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And if I do judge, my judgment is true. 
For I am not alone, but the Father who sent me is with me. He's saying, as you listen to me, all you do is look at the outside. Your opinions of me are, are so narrow and shallow. In fact, all you do is judge me. You're always trying to find fault. Those that don't want to repent of their sins are always trying to find fault with Christ. They're always arguing with Him. The light has shined on your heart and you want to argue back. But you see, He has not come at that point to judge. He's come to save. I'm not here to judge anyone. I'm here to save everyone. The time is coming, however, when He will judge. And when He passes that judgment, verse 16, If I do judge, or when He does, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It's just rich with deity and insight and truth. And then He says a third thing here. He speaks of the Father and the Son and how they witness together. He says in verse 17, It is also written in your law that the testimony of two is true. So they said, We don't believe you because you're just one guy. You could say anything. You could be a, a lunatic for all we know. Even though the evidence was to the contrary. So now he goes back. He reaches back after some explanation to where they were getting this. And he says, It is written in your law the testimony of two men is true. I'm not here alone. He said, I am one. And I'm bearing witness of myself, and the Father is with me, and He bears witness of me. So look, it isn't just one here. And look around and open your eyes, you'll see God everywhere in my ministry. And thus, what He was saying was true. I am amazed, in light of that, at the expression of hatred that they come back with. I would describe it as a, an insulting, truly vulgar remark. We sometimes use the word vulgar. This is vulgar in the truest sense. They responded back. He says, so I'm not alone. I'm not bearing witness of myself. The Father's with me. He's all around. And they come back with this vulgar remark. It's just a hatred thing. They said to him in verse 19, where is your Father? You know what they meant by that? They weren't saying, where is God with you? They were saying, yeah, we know you don't have a Father. We know you were born illegitimately. We know that you're just a product of immorality. Where's your father? Oh, we all have fathers. We can show the pedigree, you see. It was an insult. They're saying, you're just a filthy child of fornication. Unbelievable to see God stand before sinful man, who without him has no way out, to stretch out his arms and stretch out his heart and say, I'm the light and I'll show you the way in. I'll, I'll forgive you. I'll wipe it all away. And to see them, just look at him from the outward and argue with him and argue with the light and insult him on this kind of level. Don't forget who they are saying this to. God himself, who was not born of fornication. He was conceived miraculously by the Holy Spirit in a virgin, a God-glorifying, wonderful, beautiful event. And they came back with a vulgar remark, Where is your father? And he just stood there and he said, You don't know me and you don't know my father. Or you would never talk to me like that. He said, If you had known me, you would have known my father also. You remember at the end, when he's with the twelve, one of the disciples said to him, Show us the father. And he said, Have I been so long with you? And you don't know me yet? I am in the father and the father is in me. And so the father and son witnessed harmoniously and you know that expression, where is your father? You know what that is? It's another principle. It's the idea that 
it expressed the tendency of their earthbound thoughts. In a minute, he's going to say, I'm of heaven and you're from below. I'm from above, you're from below. Well, that just shows that early on. See, here he is teaching, teaching, healing, working miracles, loving. We've just had the incident with the woman taken in adultery, one of the most beautiful pictures of the love of God and the holiness of God in the Bible. And all they can do with that, all of that rich spiritual input designed to save their souls, all they can do with that is argue. And when he says, the Father is with me, all they can do is come back on a human level. Where's your Father? Humanly speaking. Let me put it to you this way. The consistent lack of true spirituality leads to the consistent lack of true spiritual thoughts. The knee-jerk reaction of a life like that is always distinctly human. You understand that? In other words, if you traffic in consistently low-level human thoughts, then confronted with a given situation, your knee-jerk natural reaction, instant reaction is going to be human. It's going to be, in that sense, carnal and not spiritual. They're given all this truth, their knee-jerk reaction is completely carnal. And frankly, what else could it be? Because that's what they were. I think we all have to ask ourselves a question here. I've been asking myself that. What's the tendency of my life? When I'm faced with a given situation, is my tendency to react purely human, what is typically human? Or is my tendency to react spiritually? That's a hard question deserves an honest answer. It's the truth, however, that makes you free. I heard this truth, and I thought of this knee-jerk reaction of them to react so humanly and carnally, consistently, because that's, that was their habit. And I said, Lord, I want to live the message I'm about to preach. I don't want to just preach these things. I want to live these things. If I never preach them, I want it for me first. It's a great principle here. So the affirmation, he's the light, the argument against it all. And the arrogance behind the argument, I just want to hop through this quick. The next section in front of us here reveals four ways that you can ensure that you will definitely die in your sins and not go to heaven. I want to hop through them fairly quickly. It's all here and it was in the lives of these men. The first thing is if you want to make sure you don't go to heaven, then just be self-righteous. In John 8, 20, these words spoke Jesus in the treasury. It's the part of the temple where they took the offering. There were these trumpet-like shaped receptacles where you could put the money in, but you basically couldn't get it out. When she dropped it down in the wide part, it got real skinny. But that's where they were in the temple. And no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. He's under the sovereign protection of God. And in verse 21, then Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and will die in your sin. And where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, basically another carnal, vulgar reaction, will he kill himself? In other words, didn't we say he was mad after all? Will he kill himself because he says, where I go, you cannot come. They could not have been farther from what he was trying to show them. And yet, there are people in the crowd that heard that and with an open heart said to themselves, what is he talking about, heaven or something? There's the, they're the ones that ended up believing. Where I go, you cannot come. You see, self-righteousness blinds you to your immediate need for salvation. I imagine these smart aleck, erudite, educated men in the crowd cracking their jokes with each other, insulting Jesus. 
And maybe on the back of their mind thinking, well, if it is all true, I still have plenty of time. After all, I'm young, just got out of school. I got plenty of time. But you see what Jesus is saying to them is the opposite. He's saying, you have a very short time. You better make up your mind. He said, because there's going to come a time when you will seek me and you will die in your sin. You have a very short time. And Jesus was always clear that you have a very short time. See, he isn't saying, I'm going to go away and hide and you're going to come looking for me. They're always looking for him to cause trouble. That's what they thought he was talking about. Thus, if they couldn't find him, he must have killed himself. But he said, come one of these days, you're going to go looking like you always do. And I'm not going to be there. And where I will be then, you can't go there. And because you're rejecting me now, and you will then, you will die in your sin. In other words, you have a very short time. You better make up your mind. He was always like that. In John 8, 21, Jesus said to them again, I, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. And where I go, you cannot come. Because you're not making the decision right now. You're putting it off in your arrogance. Well, I've got time. In John 7, turn in your Bible to John 7, 32. Just go back to John 7, 32. It's so clear here. The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent the temple guards, they were the temple police effectively, to arrest him. And Jesus said, I am with you for how long? Only a short time. And then I go to the one who sent me. His teaching was so clear on why he was here, on what he was doing, on who he was. And he said, and you will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. You have a short time to make up your mind. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 6.2, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The fact that you sit here today and listen to the gospel, it's an acceptable time in the eyes of God. He's worked with you enough to the point that you would listen to these things and be able to hear them clearly. So clearly that if you reject God, if you walk out of here today and you don't know Him, there is utterly no excuse because right now is the acceptable time. Right now He has chosen in His grace to let you hear, to touch your heart, to make it all clear to you. Now is the day of salvation. You have a short time in your life to make up your mind. And that's it. And the decision that you make in this brief life is going to stick forever when this life is over. I don't know how long we've been a church. Over a decade, 12 years, 13, I don't know. But I do know this. There are people that are in heaven now that once sat and I stared into their faces like I stare into yours now. I once watched the twinkle in their eye that came out of that walk with God and they're gone. They died and they went to heaven. There are other people that sat where you sit, that listened as you listened, that died. My feeling is they went to hell based on everything I know about them. Some of them died in awful ways. Some have died right after the service. I remember a while back when people were here and they left and one of the individuals in the party died that day. Hit by a car. Died instantly. You have a short time in this short life to make up your mind. I think it's critical that you do it as God speaks to you. And He's so gracious. You know, according to an old fable, a man made an unusual agreement with death. 
He told the Grim Reaper that he would willingly accompany him when it came time to die, but only on one condition, that death would send a messenger well in advance to warn him. The agreement was made, weeks winged away into months and months into years, then one bitter evening in the winter. As the man sat alone thinking about all his material possessions, suddenly death showed up in the room and tapped him on the shoulder. The man was startled and he cried out in despair and he said, Wait, you're here so soon and you didn't give me any warning. I thought we had an agreement. Death replied, Oh, hold it, hold it. I have more than kept my part of the bargain. I've sent you many messengers. He said, Look, you look at yourself in the mirror and you'll see some of them. He said, Death whispered, Look at your hair. It was once full and black and now it's thin and white. He said, Look at the way you tip your head and you listen to me because you can't hear as well as you used to be able to because my voice isn't as clear as it was to you. You're getting older. You've had messengers. He said, Observe how you must get so close into the mirror just to see yourself clearly when you used to just be able to walk by and go, Looking good, my man. You know, these magnifying mirrors, you know, when you get in there. But he said, yes, I've sent many messengers through the year. I've kept my part. It's too bad you didn't keep yours. I'm sorry you're not ready for me, but the time has come to leave. Don't live your life like that. Jesus said, you will seek me. The time will come. You'll look around for me, and you won't be able to go where I have gone. You will die in your sin. That's a heavy, horrifying thought. And it'll happen if you're self-righteous and you think you don't need him now. Another way to guarantee you'll be lost and die unforgiven is to be earthbound. He said in John 8:23, he said to them, You are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you, you will die in your sin. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Be self-righteous and be earthbound. Just be totally unspiritual and don't let him lift you up into spiritual things and salvation. And be unbelieving. A third thing, verse 24. Therefore I said to you, you will die in your sins if you don't believe. That's about as simple as it gets and as serious as it gets. Someone has well said of apathy, you know, that indifference that listens and does nothing. Speaking of religion, still water and still religion freeze the quickest. That's right. You have to do something with what God gives you. You have to respond to it. Van Savner said, Never before have we had so many degrees in the church and so little temperature. All this education, all this learning, like these Pharisees right here. But if you took their spiritual temperature, they were totally cold, stone, dead. Be self-righteous, earthbound, unbelieving, and be willfully ignorant. And they were... In verse 25, they said to him, this is absolutely shocking. They said to him, who are you? Who are you? Unbelievable. Raise the dead. Give sight to the blind. Heal a person who'd lost a limb so they have another limb there. Recreate it. Lazarus in the tomb for four days. He's rotting by now. To bring him back out alive isn't just to bring the soul back into the body. It's to create the whole body all over again. Who are you? Incredible. He stands there all calm, out of the self-knowledge of the godliness of his own heart and who he was, and he says, just what I've been saying to you the whole time. I've never changed my message at all. And he said, and I have many things to say, and I have many things to judge concerning you. 
I'm not judging you right now, but I will in that hour, in that day. But he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him, and they did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. They didn't understand anything because they didn't want to. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man up on the cross, the crucifixion, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but as the Father taught me, I speak these things. And when they put Him on the cross, there was every affirmation that He was who He said He was. When the sky went black, when the sun didn't shine its light, when the veil of the temple was ripped from top to bottom, when there was an earthquake, there was everything to prove it. And then the resurrection sealed it. Affirmation, the argument, their arrogance, and finally, the acceptance. I love this, verse 29. And he said, He who sent me is with me. Now read this carefully and take it away with you and think about it, because we don't have time to get into it deeply. He said, The Father has not left me alone, for I do always those things that please Him. You see, our Lord's acceptance of the Father's will brought the Father's presence always with Him. The Father has not left me alone. The supernatural presence of God was with him everywhere. And he said, it's because I do always those things that please him. I walk with him. Our Lord's acceptance of the Father's will and presence as a result. And then you have the many here. And they accept the Father's will, which is to believe on him who he sent. And thus gain the presence of God in their lives. Look at verse 30. As he spoke these words, you have this one sector saying, who are you? And then you have all these others, and it says, Many believed in Him. Right there, on the spot, they believed in Him and they were saved. As He spoke, right as He was speaking. I read this today, and I thought about it a long time. He says, The Father has not left me alone, because I do always those things that please Him. It starts by believing on Him. It continues by walking with Him. You come forward, you go forward, however you want to put it. And what happens is that after a while, when you truly come to know Him, if you're really a Christian today, you can't read this without your heart aching. The Father has not left me alone. If you're a Christian today, you read that and it just will immediately become a prayer from the deepest part of your being. God, may that be true of me. I don't want to be left, quote, alone. I want your presence to go with me everywhere I go. When Moses was hanging around too long at the base of the mountain, and it was time to move on, God came and says, How long are you going to stay at this mountain anyway? He said, Get up and go. And Moses said, Fine, I'll go. On one condition. Your presence goes with me. Jesus said, The Father has not left me alone, for I do always those things that please Him. And so we come. I want to give you a final question. Do you? Do you do those things that please Him? Has the Father left you alone? Are you there right now? Do you say in your heart, even answering back silently, Oh, yes, yes, I can't remember when I felt His presence. Well, then it's simply time to turn back to Him, to respond to the teaching He's given you tonight, and to come to Him honestly and say, Lord Jesus, I'm so used to living in lies, I'm so used to living in falsehood, that I don't know what to do when I'm face to face with true honesty and godliness and holiness in Christ. Bring me back. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. Do you believe in him? Open your heart to him.
come to Him. If you've never done it, open your heart. They believed as He spoke the words. As the words were hitting the heart, they believed and they were saved right here. If you've never opened your heart to Him, believe now. Embrace Him now. Ask Him to forgive you now. And as we come to the Lord's table, this will be a turning point in your life where the old life ends and the new life begins in Him. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank You. Thank You, Lord, for opening the way to heaven for us. And thank you, Lord, for forgiving us in Christ. And thank you, Lord, for your word that has surgically opened our hearts tonight and revealed to us what's there. And thank you, Jesus, that you are the great physician, the healer of broken hearts, the cleanser of sinful hearts. Lord, work within us. Lord Jesus, save us from our sins. And may we live the kind of life where we do always those things, not we know we'll never be perfect, Lord, but that we move in the direction that with honest hearts we seek to do those things that please the Father, that the Father will be with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.